and welcome to the Trial Talk podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Hartley, and I'm a Science Communications Officer at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. In this show, we explore the clinical trial landscape by talking to the clinicians and researchers behind the work we do. If you're interested in learning how our research can help improve healthcare in the UK and around the world, this is the podcast for you. This is part two of our series on Stampede, a prostate cancer treatment trial that has been running for 18 years. If you haven't listened to part one yet, that episode will give you a bit more background to the trial's history and its design. Results from Stampede have extended and improved the lives of many people affected by prostate cancer, which we'll cover in more detail in part three. But prostate cancer patients also played a really important role in the design and conduct of the trial, as well as in communicating its results. In this episode, we explore the role of the patient voice with David Matheson, one of the Stampede patient representatives. My name is David Matheson. Uh, in the daytime, I am reader in education for health at the University of Wolverhampton. Uh, I am also a postgraduate research tutor for health and I do all sorts of research around health, especially in patient reported outcome measures, things to do with identity and culture, and of course, things to do with prostate cancer. Patient and public involvement, or PPI, means that the research process should be an active partnership between patients, the public, and researchers. As a patient representative, David sees himself as a bridge between the researchers and the trial participants. As a PPI rep, on Stampede, one of my roles is to actually act as a sort of a, it's the, the voice of the lay person. I have no medical training, although I could honestly say I've been sick, so that does qualify me to some extent. So acting as a sort of interpreter uh, and bridge between patients and other lay folk and the clinicians. So it's really to sort of act as this kind of bridge interpretation, but also to in working with uh, patient groups and doing awareness talks and the like, be able to say what the trial is actually up to, because people generally have no idea what a clinical trial consists of. They all seem to think they're going to be a guinea pig. And to point out, well, it's not you're getting no care, you're going to get standard of care at least. So the standard of care plus something else. And it's the plus something else, which is the, well, let's say the experimental bit, for want of a better term. In Stampede, the patient representatives are part of the trial management group along with clinicians, statisticians, and other research staff. David tells us about the work that this entails. We get invited to every trial management group. I do my best to attend everyone. Uh, we get all the documentation that goes to the trial management group, showing how the trial is going, the amount of uh, uptake in various areas, and stuff you actually have to read before the meetings varies considerably. The biggest input Really, it's in terms of the amount of time you'd spend on it is with the patient information material, where we have to go over this very, very finely on the way in which these are phrased so that you want them to be as short as possible. You want them to be as succinct as possible, but you also want them to be as complete as necessary. So saying exactly what people are going to be involved in, what's going to happen, how they're going to be fed back to and stuff like that. So how does one become a patient representative? David's journey began when he was first diagnosed around 10 years ago. I was innocently going through treatment the first time I was getting treatment for prostate cancer in 2012-2013. And I was asked to be part of the RAPPER trial. 
This was to do with high dose rate brachytherapy. And unbeknownst to me, I'd been picked to be in the experimental arm. Uh, it's not one of these things where beforehand you said, we well, need this arm or the other. It's just, do you want to be in the repertoire? Yeah, sure. Okay, you're in the experimental arm. Fine. So I had the high dose rate brachytherapy. And sometime after this, I was like a few months later, I'd begun doing uh, various voluntary work with Prostate Cancer UK. And they were looking for somebody to become a rep on Stampede. And there were two qualifying criteria to be fulfilled. One, you had to have or have had prostate cancer, so I ticked that box, and you had to have taken part in a trial of some sort. So I ticked that box and I duly joined the group. Being a multi-arm, multi-stage trial, which tests multiple treatment options at once, Stampede is a bit more complex than a traditional clinical trial. David recalls having to get to grips with Stampede's design. My impression when I first joined Stampede and looked at the voluminous stuff that suddenly landed on me was, wow, that sounds rather complicated. Rather than being a nice simple, we've got a control arm and an experimental arm. Uh, no, 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 we had, uh, I think, about six uh, trial arms at that point and one control arm. And it did occur to me fairly quickly that in doing that, that saves an awful lot of messing about because the amount of time you spend trying to recruit people at all is quite phenomenal. And if you're trying to get a separate control arm for every single trial arm, you're wasting an awful lot of resource because those that are in the control arm, they're in the control arm, they get standard of care and that's it. So why not reuse them? And I thought it was a very eco-friendly and efficient way of going about things. It did seem also rather complicated. And even though my background is in maths and physics, it took me a fair amount of time to get my head around Kaplan-Meier curves and stuff like this. I think I got fairly quickly up to speed on it. So that, that basically was that. David and the other patient representatives are actively involved behind the scenes of Stampede. Their feedback has had a clear influence on the direction of the trial, such as when patients should be given chemotherapy drugs like docetaxel. The docetaxel thing really got me going because one of the first things that occurred to me was, why are we waiting until people are really sick before giving this stuff? You know, And a point I made in one of the trial management groups was, look, if you're going to poison me, do it while I'm fit or at my fittest. Because as my disease progresses, I'm going to get less and less fit. It's as simple as that. So the more fit I am, the better I'm going to be able to withstand well, the devastating effect of a chemotherapy agent. And that was taken on board, which I was rather pleased about. Another area where patients can make a big difference is language. One very important way, I think, in which we have had influence, it's not a definitive influence, has been in whether you talk about uh, tumour volume or tumour burden. Because volume to your average Joe just means sort of the space a thing takes up, whereas burden indicates more the impact that it has on the person that has it. And it hasn't been completely consistent across the articles that will come out of Stampede, but at least some have taken on this notion of tumour burden rather than volume. And I'm quite amazed, actually, in talking to various oncologists outside of Stampede, that when they talk about tumour volume and you ask them, what do you mean? They kind of go, um, ah, uh, um. And eventually they're beginning to realise that actually what they've got is which is a concept that should be dropped out the window um, because it, it gives the wrong impression, even to the clinicians. So a tumour burden, much preferable, especially for emphasising it's the burden on the patient. In Stampede, the patient representatives have also had input into what data is collected. Among the PPI reps on Stampede 2, 
out one of the pre-discussions that we had before a, a trial management group was concerning the, the granularity of the data, just how far can you burrow into it? Because the distinct impression we had was that it wasn't taking account of age, it wasn't taking account of uh, ethnicity, however you want to define ethnicity. We proposed in one of the meetings that, uh, well, I mean, the age data was already there, the ethnicity data can be got uh, that it should be fetched. And in Stampede 2, ethnicity data is going to be gathered routinely. Therefore, we can look to see in, in the fullness of time uh, what differences there are in responses to treatment according to whatever particular ethnic group someone belongs to. It's clear not just from David, but also from the researchers that Stampede really benefited from having patient reps on board. Professor Nick James is the chief investigator of Stampede, based at the Institute of Cancer Research. He's worked closely with patients to make sure the results from Stampede were translated into real-world impact. And we've always had at least two patients on our trial management group right the way through, and and they've always been very active and uh, insightful into what they say about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Recently, we've actually expanded it to include a black patient because prostate cancer is more common in black men, and they are generally underrepresented in trials, although we don't actually know the ethnic mix in Stampede, to be honest. And he has been very helpful in terms of uh, helping us think about how we might make sure we recruit enough patients from the black community in particular, which I know is not one homogenous thing, but um, it, yeah, the sorts of things that might be of concern that are different uh, to white patients. The patients have always been very actively involved and UCL has been fantastic on this as well in terms of producing patient-friendly accounts of, of what we've been studying, which we've distributed both to patients and more widely through the website, which I think have been key to maintaining support for the trial. We've made a point of presenting the results at patient conferences, so I presented the dose taxable results, and that turned out to be very critical to getting the uh, NHS to fund it. So we presented the results at ASCO pre-presentation. We sent the results to NHS England and NICE and said, we, we're going to show you these positive results. We would like to like you to approve its use. And they said, no, we won't. Uh, they said, we won't look at it until you publish the paper. And, and and then it'll be looked at for the next financial year. So it was it was kicking it a year, eighteen months into the future at the very earliest. And what happened was that we presented it at a national prostate patients conference, and of course got huge interest from patients in having the treatment. This generated multiple requests to NHS Trust to receive those taxable, most of which were refused, but not all. And it culminated in, 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 some, in an MP asking a question at PMQs in Parliament, whereupon um, NICE and NHS England, I gather, were contacted directly by the Secretary of State for Health and told, sort this out now. And, um, you know, and we, they did still insist on us publishing the paper, which, of course, we were going to do anyway. But the um, NHS England guidance and the NICE guidance were published simultaneously with the Lancet publishing our paper. But the patient involvement was absolutely key to getting it into the clinic. Professor Max Palmer is another member of the Stampede Trial Management Group. He leads the methodology side of Stampede at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL where patient involvement is now built into clinical trials wherever possible. You have to remember when we started this um, project, uh, uh, patient involvement and patient representation was really somewhat uh, checkered and, and ad hoc. 
patients weren't consistently involved across trials, etc. So this was um, really quite not unique, but not commonly done. And, uh, and and the great thing that they particularly do is they hold you to account. They say they ask the questions. Well, why can't you do this? And then if you bluster and say and give a a a, a, a not very constructive response to that, that easily is, it comes out very easily and actually is a very positive sort of part of the process of getting to a a, a good answer and a and a good approach. So what lessons has David taken away from his experience as a patient representative? And how can he use this to help others affected by prostate cancer? Keep this stuff as simple as possible, but as complicated as necessary. It's a basic pedagogical thing uh, so that you're not hiding behind language. And this works just as much for communicating with patients. And I think this is something which uh, it'd be good to see it generalised. You can simplify your language without patronising and you can in fact basically uh, validate what the patient knows. And this is another thing we want to get across as patient uh, representatives is the patients by and large are intelligent, engaged people. Therefore treat them as such and encourage them to ask questions. And that's one thing which as a PPI rep, um, which I do uh, like outside of this, is try to empower people to get them to actually think, well, you know, we pay for the medics through the NHS or otherwise, therefore challenge them. Don't be bamboozled. They're giving their opinion. Get them to explain it to you. If you don't, if you don't grasp it, explain it. You know, what does metastatic disease actually do? Because in my experiences, especially with older patients, is that they just accept what's told to them. Doctor knows best. Well, actually, that's not what shared decision-making is about. Doctor should explain or get nurse or somebody else to explain the good points, the bad points, and so on. Sometimes other prostate cancer patients approach David for advice or support. The other thing that I do uh, periodically is to support folk who are newly diagnosed, uh, either directly with them or with you know talking to family members. I don't give medical advice at all. I'm very careful not to say, well, you should do this or should do that. We establish what, what the stage of the disease is at and what do they know about treatment options. And through Stampede, my knowledge of treatment options has expanded enormously. Uh, so with that, I'm able to say, okay, if you do this, then here, what the side effect profile looks like. And it's a case of knowledge is power and sharing knowledge at a level that, at that level complexity and intensity that the person I'm speaking to can take on board. And, and at times it consists of finding a metaphor to explain what a particular thing is like. So, I've been asked by multiple uh, times, you know, what's it like to have a, a truss biopsy? What's it feel like? And I say, well, have you ever used an electric stapler? See that thunk you get when you pull the trigger on an electric stapler? It's just like that, except it's in your bum. And they laugh, which is the, the whole point is to, that they laugh. But by laughing, they actually manage to diffuse a large extent of their own anxiety. I just do awareness talks where I do little, I have little cartoons of myself and people laugh. That's the whole point. Or you know, what's it like to form one deprivation therapy? There's a little animated gif of me with gobs of sweat flying off. You know, and again, they laugh. As somebody affected by prostate cancer and someone who interacts a lot with other prostate cancer patients, David tells us what Stampede means to that community. For me as a patient, one of the major things that Stampede has meant is hope. That something is going to come along that will actually cure me of this damn disease. Or 
and or, which will mean it just becomes a chronic condition that uh, take medication for X amount of time and it becomes livable. Currently, the kind of drugs that are there, especially for um, the, the much more advanced disease, have an absolutely ferocious uh, side effects profile. And the hope is that further down the line, there's going to be things with f fewer side effects, more livable side effects. And as I say, in, this, in the perfect world, that uh, some of the therapies that are well, show promise will actually work to cure the disease. Th this is why we do it. It's uh, to benefit ourselves, which is reasonable enough. It's also to benefit others. And in the case of uh, a father with prostate cancer, it's to benefit his sons. And my son is now two and a half times more likely to develop prostate cancer than I am. So uh, I not only have skin in the game as an individual, I've got generational skin in the game. And speaking to other patients and significant others of patients, the, the notion of hope is a very, very important thing. It's hope that uh, even if an individual's own disease isn't going to be cured, that cures or better ways of living with it are, are going to be developed. Thank you for listening. This was part two of our series on the Stampede clinical trial. We have one more part left which focuses on the enormous impact of Stampede, as well as what's still to come for the trial. If you'd like to learn more about Stampede, there's lots of information on the MRCCTU at UCL website and at stampedetrial.org.